Church, we're in Mark chapter 6, and I don't know how to tell you this other than just tell you, I, I want to preach the whole chapter. I'm not going to do that because time won't allow me, but there's, the Bible's an amazing book. I mean, it's just incredible how Mark puts together chapter 6, right? And, and when he wrote it, he didn't say like chapter 6, that was added later, but, but he does some things to show us the sections that he's writing in the book. And before we even read verses 7 through 13, if you'll just indulge me a moment. This isn't in the notes. It's, it's not planned. And sometimes that's the fun stuff. So Jesus was in Nazareth last week, right? And he's rejected by his hometown. His hometown says, yeah, we know who you are. And then in the section of verses that we're about ready to read, Jesus is going to send them on a mission back into the Israelite territory where he's been preaching and teaching. And so it's, he's kind of softened up the ground a little bit, not to mention the fact they have the Old Testament. They should have known that Jesus and expected Jesus was coming. And he tells them what not to take, right? Including don't take any bread. We'll get there in a minute. And then in verse 30 and 31, the, the apostles come back and they tell Jesus what had happened. And the reason it takes all the way to verse 30 is because there's this insertion of a story about what happened to John the Baptist. John the Baptist fades from the scene in chapter 1. Jesus preaches the message of repentance. He calls his apostles and then he works miracles all the way up through chapter 5. Then he's rejected by his hometown and then they're sent out on mission. Don't take any bread. They come back and tell Jesus what happened in their lives and in their ministry and then in verse 31, he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest for a while. Mission is exhausting. And it's, I'm glad that Jesus gives us permission to rest along the journey from time to time. And then he says, For there were many people coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. Don't take any bread. They don't have time to eat. And then what's the next story? Jesus feeds the 5,000. I'm just going to leave it at that for right now. But Jesus is doing something in the way that He sends the apostles out, in the fact that they come to Him hungry, and then He shows Himself to be the bread of life. And that's not the sermon. Mark 6, verses 7 through 13. Would you stand for the reading of God's Word? Verse, I'm going to break in at the, the second half of verse 6 because it's really connected to this section. And he, meaning Jesus, was going around the villages teaching. That's what Jesus did. He taught the Old Testament and how it pointed to him wherever he went. And he summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And he instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey except a mere staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belt, but to wear sandals. And he added, do not put on two tunics. In other words, one shirt. And he said to them, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. Any place that does not receive you or listen to you, as you go out from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. They went out and preached that men should repent. And they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. You may be seated.
God in heaven, we ask that you would take these verses of Scripture and that you would open our minds and our hearts to what you have to say to us, your church, what you have to say to us individually, and God, that we would be willing to apply ourselves to this text this day. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. I've titled this text this morning, Advance the Kingdom, Depend on Christ. Advance the Kingdom, Depend on Christ. If you're going to advance the kingdom of Christ, you've got to depend on Christ who sends you out. You can't depend on your own resources, your own strength, your own power, your own planning, or your own preparation. A hundred years or so ago, during my junior year at Northside High School, as a, as a track athlete, our head coach took me off the two-mile at the beginning of our junior year, and he asked me to instead focus my attention on the mile and the 4 by 8 relay. I was a little disappointed. I enjoyed running the two-mile. I thought I was good at the two-mile. I ran cross-country, which is five kilos or 3.2 miles. And so to make that transition out of cross-country into track and have to back all the way down to the mile and the, and the 800 and the 4 by 8 and miss out on the two-mile was a little disappointing to me, but I was a team player. Yes, sir, we'll do what we need to do to score the most points and win the district because we were in a chain of what I think became seven district titles in a row. And we didn't want to mess that up. So, for the entire season, the coach may have let me run the two-mile one time. Just for fun. It was a team we were going to whip, and so do whatever you want to do. Go out there and run the two-mile. And then, the district meet came. So, you got an uh, entire season, I had planned and prepared and trained for the mile and the 4 by 8 They... They are at tips of the track meet, so you don't have to run them back to back. You get your rest, you recuperate, you run. But at the district meet, Lord Botetot made a strategic swap in where they were having some of their athletes run, some of their track stars run. And at the last minute, my coach realized that this decision had been made on their part, and he came to me and he said, Daniel, I need you, after you finish the first leg of the 4 by 8 relay, two laps around the track, 800 meters, I need you to rest really quickly and then go run the two mile, and you've got to beat Will Weish, the phenom freshman from Lord Botetot, for us to win the district. Okay. Now, I'll tell you later how that story ended if you want, it, if you want to know, but the point of the story is the feeling in my stomach at that moment, because... I wanted to be, yes, sir, whatever you say, sir. But on the inside, I was dying. I was like, you've got to be kidding me. I, I'm not ready for this. I'm not prepared for this. I haven't trained for this all season. I've trained for speed. And now you want me to stretch by an extra four laps around the track and beat this young kid who's throwing out crazy times? You, you're insane. But here we go. All right. And the point of that illustration is that how I was feeling in that moment must have been something like the nervous anticipation and feeling, feelings of inadequacy that would have characterized the disciples as Jesus now sends them out. Right? They've seen Jesus doing all these great things, but the fact is, you're never going to feel adequately prepared for what Jesus is calling you to. If you're waiting until that magic moment when it's like, okay, now I've got it all put together, now I can go, it's never going to come. Jesus, how about a few more lessons? How about some more preaching? How about some more miracles? Just a little more time, Jesus. We know what you are sending us into, but we don't know what we're doing yet. 
You see, getting involved in the work of advancing Christ's kingdom is kind of like having a baby. If you wait until you're ready to have a baby, you'll never get started having a baby. Young couples all the time, well, we're not ready. We don't have enough money. We don't have enough this. We don't have enough that. Just have the baby. I know. In our lives, it wasn't as easy as that. Stacy and I tried and tried and tried and were unsuccessful, so I fully recognize a number of couples struggle with infertility, but some of us this morning, we just need to get off the sideline and have the baby. We need to get involved in the mission. We need to stop waiting for what it is that God is sending us to and recognize that we've been sitting in pews, we've heard sermons, we've, we've been trained, we've been in Sunday school classes. God is calling us to take the gospel into the community and to reach and to win the lost. As Edwards writes, a genuine call to ministry always calls us to that for which we are not adequately prepared. It is only in awareness of such that the Christian experiences the presence and the promise of Christ and learns to depend not on their ability, but on Christ and the power of the proclamation to authenticate itself. Do you believe there's power in the Word of God? Do you believe that when you preach the gospel rightly and accurately that the word itself has an inherent power and it will authenticate itself? It will. You just go in obedience and be faithful to preach the word and watch what God does. You see, at this point, Jesus has called his disciples. He's designated them and he's taught a group of followers. And Jesus, as he begins his third preaching tour in Galilee, he sends his disciples on a trial short-term mission trip. And it is designed to teach them to rely on the power and the will of God. That's what God wants for us, church. To rely on the power and the will of God in pursuing the people of God until He comes. He's teaching us that living the life of an ambassador for Christ is living a life of dependence upon God in every aspect of His mission. So, I believe this text shows us four things that we must do to advance Christ's kingdom. And really, there's a fifth thing by the illustration of John the Baptist, but I didn't have time to include that. Y'all would have wanted to go get dominoes or something. So we'll do John the Baptist next week, but it's very much so connected. The reason John the Baptist is added is very much connected to this life of a disciple of advancing the mission of God in the world. So the four things we'll consider today. First, we must go as a team and in His authority. Second, we must rely on God to provide for our needs. Third, we must leave the results to God. And finally, we must preach the need for repentance and do the work of the kingdom. First, we must go as a team and in His authority. It's encouraging to know that Jesus uses, uses the disciples in spite of their record. They don't have a pristine record at this point in the gospel. So far, they have impeded Jesus' mission in chapter 1. They've become exasperated with Him in chapter 4 and chapter 5. And they have even opposed Him directly in chapter 3, verse 21. But sometimes it takes a little on-the-job training for the reality of the lessons Jesus is teaching us to take root. So He sends Jesus, so Jesus sends rather the disciples out into territory where He's already been. And He sends them in pairs, verse 7. God uses mission teams, pairs, minimally pairs, and oftentimes teams even more. Why? For several reasons, I believe. First, we were not made to live as islands, but in community with others. God makes Adam, and he says it's not good for man to be alone. At the very beginning, God starts with a pair. When we go as a team and face discouragement or rejection, 
It is our common bond in Christ and in His mission that keeps us going. Second, going as a team provides a broader range of gifts and abilities in a missionary context. If you're on Facebook and you follow me on Facebook, you may have seen the video that I posted of Sheriff Orange getting in front of me right as I was getting ready to pick that massive log up and put it on my shoulder to dispose of it. He cut in front of me and he picked it up and I I didn't have the privilege of doing that right. There's no way I could have picked it up. But Eric could. And God fit our mission team together in such a way that there were things that Eric could do that Pastor Daniel never could do. There were things that Pastor Hope could do, like speak Spanish, that Pastor Daniel, at least so far, could not do. He assembled a team with a variety of gifts and abilities and talents to accomplish the work. Finally, going as a team helps ensure accountability. In Deuteronomy 19.15, Moses tells us that a matter is determined by the presence of two or three witnesses. You know, everybody wants to be successful, don't they? Everybody wants to see themselves as as successful. And when we go solo, we are tempted to either abandon the mission when it gets difficult or change the message of the gospel to ensure that we at least appear successful. We want to come back and tell everybody about the great response that we had, all the people that were coming. Oh, I I didn't preach the gospel, but I look successful. But see, when you go as a team, it's a hedge against the temptation to compromise the gospel in order to appear successful. The twelve are not sent to do a new work, but to continue the work and extend the work begun by Jesus. The emphasis of this passage is not on innovation, all the things that we can come up with and do, but rather on the full representation of the king who commissioned them. You see, going as a team helps us accurately represent Jesus by not relying on ourselves, but upon God who builds the team and gives the harvest. So, the team helps ensure accountability, but it also gives us confidence that we represent a king and a kingdom that Satan cannot destroy. Christ's authority gives us that assurance. We don't go on mission in our own power, on our own whim, or on our own choosing. We go as Christ the head directs us. Which raises a question, church. How is it that Christ the head, now today, now that we have a local church, how is it that Christ directs His disciples to go on mission? We don't just go anywhere and everywhere. We go where the church is sending us where it is that God Himself is sending us through the authority of the local church. Even the Apostle Paul, who's called on a first mission trip, doesn't go on his first mission trip until his local church commissions, authorizes, and sends him to go. There's an order, there's a structure, there's a strategy by which we pursue the mission of God in the world. And I'm grateful that God has allowed us to call Pastor Hope Marquez as our missions and community pastor. Because there's going to be a million good ideas, but we can't do everything. we got to be strategic, and God Himself will direct our paths and call us to know where to go, when to go, how to go, and who to send. And that's up to Christ exercising His authority through the local church. The mission we pursue needs to be the mission to which Christ is calling us. Because that is the mission that will come with His authority, no matter what demonic opposition may come. But secondly, we must rely on God to provide for our needs. Verses 8 and 9. He instructed them 
that they should take nothing for their journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belt, but to wear sandals. And he added, do not put on two tunics. The disciples were to go with only the barest of essentials. A shirt, a belt, a pair of sandals, and a walking stick. They couldn't even take bread. The principle here, Pastor Hope, is not that we can only wear one tunic on a mission trip or that we cannot have a carry-on bag. Pat, this brother right here has a carry-on bag. I don't know how he justifies it as a carry-on bag, but it's got the little pop-out side things so you think it can fit in and then suddenly poof, it's like a robot luggage piece. And, and he was making fun of me for taking a carry-on bag. But it's okay to take a carry-on bag. But in this case, the disciples are asked to take on their mission to Israel the exact same things that the Israelites were allowed to take out of Egypt in the Exodus. You say, well, what's the point of that? It's the exact same items. Why? Because Christ is through His disciples symbolically declaring that they are the ambassadors of a new and greater Exodus. The, the disciples are coming with the commission of the king who frees him, his people, not just from Egypt, but from sin and death and slavery to sin. And while it's okay to take a carry-on bag or even a fresh change of underwear on a mission trip, we must not place our trust in our supplies or in our training, but rather in the One who is sending us. Jesus does not want our stuff to compromise what people see as the substance of our salvation. The people to whom we are going must see that our dependence is upon Christ who sends us. You see, this was a problem in the early modern missions movement. What happened is we assumed that churches in tribal or tropical or desert locations needed to look like churches in the United States. And so what we did is we didn't just import the gospel into a tribe in Africa, we also imported three-piece suits and steeples, clothing and architecture that makes no sense in a desert or a jungle and which slowed the growth of future churches because they became dependent on funding from the West to maintain the unnecessary trappings of the church. You see, when we go into a new territory church, we go with the gospel. We go with the support of our church family, and we go with confidence that God will raise up the resources necessary for the local church to thrive and be whatever He wants it to be among the people to whom He is sending us. When we go, we proclaim with our mouths that a greater exodus has come through Jesus Christ, and we show with the humility of our lives that we believe it. We don't got to take everything. We take the gospel enough to live and watch the gospel produce a new work among the new people to whom Christ is sending us. Thirdly, we must leave the results to God. This is tough, isn't it? It's hard to leave the results to God. Because I just want everybody to get it. But we leave the results to God. Leaving the results to God means being satisfied with His accommodation. This is what Jesus means by wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. In verse 10, if somebody opens their home and people respond to the gospel, 
We don't abandon our first hosts for ones who have a larger house or more in common with us as the gospel goes forward. As Aiken writes, don't dishonor the kindness of a lesser home by moving to a nicer home and thereby become an offense to the gospel. We must be content with God's provision so that people may clearly see the Christ we proclaim. And when we go, some people, some cities are going to be open to the gospel and some, at least initially, are not. And in the case of Israel, there is no reason other than stubborn pride to keep them from hearing the message that the disciples proclaim. They have the Old Testament. They've heard Jesus preach and perform miracles. They've heard that He's raised a young girl from the dead. They should repent and believe the Gospel. So when towns reject the disciples, what are the disciples supposed to do? Shake the dust off the soles of their feet. Why? For a testimony against them. Verse 11. When the Jews traveled outside of Palestine and they were entering back into their hometown, so they'd been out in the Gentile territory and they're coming back, they had a, a tradition that they had developed of shaking the, sandal, the dust off the sandals of their feet before they entered back into Palestine. Why? Because they had gone out into heathen, Gentile territory, into godless country. And what Jesus is telling His disciples is to symbolically warn the Israelites that their rejection of Jesus means that they are rejecting the one true God. And rejecting Jesus makes them no different from the Gentiles that they love to hate and look down upon. As Edwards writes, Jesus eliminates the presumption of salvation on the basis of ethnicity, nation, or race. You can't get in by biology. You can only get in by the shed blood of Christ. There is no other way. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. You are either in Christ or you are condemned. And you better be in Christ if you're going to stand before God Almighty and have any hope of life everlasting and while the short-term mission trip of the disciples to Israelite territory is unique, it's a unique mission trip with unique circumstances because Christ is showing us something about His rejection among His own people, we can go with the Gospel assured that when we go, and we go with the power of the Gospel, and that when we are rejected, people are not rejecting us. They are rejecting Christ as King. Which means we can leave the results to God Understanding that if Christ's kingdom comes through His crucifixion, we should not be surprised that the mission will at times involve our rejection. If Christ had to go to a cross to secure the mission, we ought not be surprised when we get rejected along the way. Let's be sure that as we go and when we are rejected, we are rejected because of the message we proclaim and the way in which we proclaim it and nothing else and leave the results to God. Finally, if we're going to advance the kingdom of Christ in this world, we must preach the need for repentance and do the work of the kingdom. Verse 12 says, They went out and preached that men should repent. And then in verse 13, we see them doing the work of the kingdom. The mission of the disciples includes preaching repentance and doing the work of the kingdom. Casting out demons, anointing sick people with oil and healing them. The mission of Christ, church, requires both word and deed. 
And we've got a history of wanting to do one or the other. We either want to go repair houses or we want to go preach the gospel. We want to go take care of sick people. We want to, we want to fix their teeth or we want to preach the gospel. The Bible always presents word and deed together. Being a church on mission is about extending Christ's kingdom where we are and wherever He sends us. And to do this, to do this we must not only live in dependence upon God, we must also work in dependence on His power and proclaim dependence upon God to those we are sent. The disciples preached the same message they have heard. Jesus preached this message. People should repent. In Mark 1.15, Jesus begins His ministry preaching. And what does He preach? The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. What does repent mean? Repent means to turn or to change direction, to change our mind about something. It means we acknowledge that we are sinners and we have no solution for our sin. It does not mean simply changing our minds, by the way, about the sin. It also means that we see Christ as the only solution. It doesn't mean to just turn away from something into a, an oblivion of whatever. To turn from sin is to stop going this way and to make a direct change and to acknowledge that Christ is over there and I'm following Him the rest of my days. Anything less than that is not repentance. The church must live as those who are truly depending upon Christ. And we must preach dependence upon Christ for life, meaning, purpose, salvation as our only hope. And we must work in the power and the authority of Christ. You see, apart from Jesus, we are powerless to overcome the demonic opposition that awaits us. Or for Christ to use us to bring healing to the lives of the hurting all around us. But when we go to our neighbors and to the nations in the authority and power of Jesus... Satan cannot overcome the powerful, authoritative, spirit-given power of God working its way through God's people, His church. When we live on mission in dependence upon God, His power freely flows through us to overcome demonic opposition and advance His kingdom. You know, the only two places where the New Testament mentions anointing the sick with oil is here and in James 5.14. In this, context, the in this context, we're talking about mission, the advance of the kingdom. And in James, we're talking about the context of the established local church. Oil is a sign of the inbreaking of the good news. An anointing with the oil of gladness, as Psalm 45.7 calls it. And while it is not always true, there is often a relationship between human sickness and the presence of indwelling sin. But when we entrust our lives to God and we repent of sin, the oil of the gladdening presence of God comes to our lives and often sickness flees. Whether God works miraculously through His church in pioneer missions territory, or He simply sustains us in the places that the gospel has been proclaimed, the message we preach and the work we must do comes from the power and the authority of the King who is sending us. And it is demonstrated by the humility of our lives and the consistency of the call that we preach when we preach repentance. As Edwards writes, everything, 
even the poverty and the simplicity of the messenger, indeed, even the courage to be rejected, must conform to the word that affirms that God is infinitely more important than everything else. Which raises a question for us, church. Do our lives confirm and prove that God is infinitely more important than everything else? Do our lives, what we say, do, think, confirm that God is infinitely more important than everything else? So to close this morning, I want to ask you a few questions, food for thought. How might we apply this text in our lives? The first is this, how am I using my life to advance God's kingdom? How am I using my marriage to advance God's kingdom? How am I using my parenting to advance God's kingdom? What is God doing in my life that I might be a part of advancing God's kingdom? It's a good question that we should ask of ourselves, and in light of this text, we should be able to answer. Secondly, Am I a lone ranger? Or do I let Jesus set the agenda through what He's doing in His local church? Do I like to come up with my own thing, my own ambitions, my own agenda? Or am I filtering what God would have me to do and to be through the local church that He's made me a part of, through which He allows His authority to rule and to reign in my life? Thirdly, When people look at my life, can they see that I am trusting in Jesus to meet my needs? If I say to the world, Jesus is all I really need, do I live a life that says they can believe that? I submit to you, church, that we've got a lot of needs at North Roanoke Baptist Church when it comes to our finances, and our finances connect to the mission. If all of us covenanted together for one year... I'm going to live my life at the bare minimum and prove that Christ is enough in my life. We would meet every need that we've got. We would meet it just like that. Am I really proving to the watching world that Jesus is all I need? Do I evaluate my service more on the results or on my faithfulness? If I go on a mission trip and nobody trusts Christ, do I feel like a failure? Or do I believe that God honored my faithfulness in going and that He had a reason for me to go and that He's going to do the work? When I consider the work of the church, how highly does the advance of Christ's kingdom rank for me? If I had to give up a program or a pet project or a special thing and it was for the purpose of the church of God being involved in the mission of God no matter what it costs me, am I okay with that? Am I putting the mission and the advance of the gospel of Jesus Christ in this valley above everything else? And finally, what is Christ calling me to do so that I may rely more on Him and less on me. Jesus is enough. Would you pray with me? King of heaven, we thank you that you stooped low, that you came down, that you called us to be your disciples, that you've commissioned us to take your gospel to the ends of the earth, 
that You've given us Your authority and Your power and that there's nothing that can stand against us when we go in Jesus' name. And so God, I ask that You would remind Your church this day that there are people waiting, that the fields are white unto the harvest, and that we would declare with our lips that people can depend on God and we would show with our lives that we are depending upon God. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Whatever you need this morning, you want to be a part of a church that isn't perfect by any stretch, but wants to put the mission of God at the forefront of what we do, we'd invite you to come and say, I want to be a part of North Roanoke Baptist Church. There might be some of you that say, I haven't repented of my sin. I haven't made that full 180 degree turn from pursuing my sin and pursuing the life of Christ. We'd invite you to come and trust in Jesus. And others of you, you know Christ, but you've gotten comfortable. You might want to come and pray and say, I'm tired of being comfortable. I want to be on the leading edge of dependence upon Christ, that He would use me in His mission. Whatever God would have you to do this morning as we respond, stand and we'll sing together.